0: Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud
1: computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to The Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Aaron, we are on the third of our 4 for 400. It's been uh it's been a, f- a fun journey so far. We've got to look at the technology side of our last 400 shows. I think we're going to change it up a little bit though for the next two.
2: Yeah, it's it's time to talk about uh people a little bit more and careers a little bit more and 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 connect the dots back on trends as well and um, you know, it's one of those of, of all the shows here probably. This show is a little bit of maybe Brian and I um, almost airing a little bit of our own dirty laundry with our careers um, because, you know, we, we certainly uh, have never uh, necessarily uh, connected all the dots in a straight line. Yeah, I guess is <laughs> the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if somebody asked what our career path looked like it may look a little bit like the
1: uh, old Oregon Trail video game, you know, it's a lot of <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, we we we've, we've had some success. I mean, you were you were part of one of our largest uh, you know, companies that got acquired as a as a guest with Solid Fires. So that was that was very cool. We've we've both been part of starting some things, but yeah, we've we've had some failures along the way as well. So, uh, you want to go first and maybe point out a couple of things that uh, you know maybe. Why don't you do this? Start off with with one successful and one maybe uh, one sort of failure or less than successful thing.
2: Sure, sure. Um, so I, I'll I'll start this success um, to be more a combination of career decision, but then also career approach. Um, and then, you know, we'll talk about the failure one in a second, but the, the, the success one, I would say, yeah, like you had already mentioned, you know, solid, solid fire, I, but actually even before that, I would say VCE, I'm going to combine those instead of into a company, I'm going to combine them into this idea of finding a hypergrowth growth company or a company that's about to launch. And for those that don't know, I, you know, VCE, I was in the quarter before they launched solid fire was in the quarter after they launched, um, both companies, uh, you know, grew extremely well over the years um, f- to, you know, various amounts of success um, and, and eventual exits. Um, but the idea here of, of, you know, learning from a hyper growth and just being thrown in the deep end and the idea of there's not necessarily any wrong answers because everyone is just scrapping and waking up every day and putting in a lot of long hours. But, you know, two years at a high house in your career um so i'll do i'm gonna do with that one and kind of flip it back to you and then we can kind of maybe talk about some of the others as well
1: yeah i'll uh i'll throw out kind of in the same same vein as you without airing all the dirty laundry but i'll throw a couple of things that you know people can just kind of consider when they're looking at you know Career choices or things that might succeed or fail. Um, you know, I was at uh, I was at Cisco mm, right around the time we started the show. Actually, I think we were <laughs> the original massive cloudcast studio was a closet over at uh, over at Cisco. Um, yep. But and unfortunately,
2: uh, we had a picture and it's lost to time. We can't I, th- find the picture. I,
1: I think I might have it somewhere. We'll oh, see do you I really? I might. <laughs> um, anyway, so, so I was I was working on some uh, I was working on some data stutter stuff and early cloud stuff. And, uh, we, uh, they, you
2: were VCE before it was VCE and before I was even, yeah, there.
1: yeah, yeah. And then I, I was at Cisco and, and we, uh, we hired a guy named Lou Tucker, who was sort of a, a just a, a rock star luminary in the industry he had been at sun and, and people knew Lou around open source and, and Cisco had, a, had gotten this guy and he was going to lead the open source stuff. And and luckily I got to work with Lou directly in the office of the CTO And, you know, there was a lot of optimism. It was like, okay, open source is becoming a thing. Open stack's becoming a thing. Um, This is going to be a chance for, you know, Cisco to put a bunch of money into it. And it was one of those ones that by by nothing that Lou didn't try and do, it was just a realization that, you know, one person is really, really hard for one person, especially an outsider, to change the culture of a company. And, and open source really was it was never something that Cisco was going to get right. They've never necessarily gotten it right. And it's just their culture. I mean, when you've been around for 20 plus years, it's hard to change the culture. So be very, very careful if uh, you get uh, brought into an opportunity that that stepping back from it a little bit, you go... How much of a culture am I going to be asked to change? Because it is a uh, it is very very hard to move big boats and turn them. So it's fun. You'll learn a lot, but uh, you know, be be tempered in in how much you think you're going to change the culture.
2: Yeah, uh, and I would just just add to that too. It, it, um, we we both have had the the uh, the experiences with that of mm-hmm. you know the the culture clashes, if you will, and and and. But it's not even us. Like let's t- <laughs> let's take a you know a pretty recent ex- example. You know. Diane Green at Google, yeah, <laughs> right? like it, it. It doesn't matter where you you necessarily go. You take any one of our big industry giants, and you try and you know at the sea level if they try and inject a certain amount of change, try and inject a certain amount of culture. You know, it people is is I don't want to say easy, but people is easier. Technology is easier. Culture is hard. Super hard. Super hard.
1: I'll throw one 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 other one out there, um, and this is this kind of goes to the you know, lots of people will change jobs and you will hopefully get a chance to work on a lot of different technologies. Um, usually when you're working on something, you're super passionate about it, you you buy into it, it kind of becomes the thing that you're focused on for a while. Uh, but I will I will throw this lesson out there and I'll, I'll kind of give the backstory out and then explain the lesson. Um, I was working, I did a little stint uh, with the folks at Wikibon. I did some uh, some analyst work for about six to 12 months. And one of the first projects I had was to write up a, a review and an analysis of a bunch of the early has platforms, So things like Pivotal Cloud Foundry and Red Hat OpenShift and Apprenda and AppSera and some companies that don't exist anymore. And and I wrote it, uh, you know, as, as non-biased as I could, as, as sort of objective as I could. And at the time, it was the very first release of Red Hat OpenShift, they had just shifted to Kubernetes. People really didn't know what that was. People didn't trust Google, and Pivotal Cloud Foundry was very well established at that point. And the, the conclusion of the paper was basically, you know, if you're looking for something like this, Pivotal is a much better choice. And I remember the Red Hat people not being real happy with me at the time. Um, you know, nobody likes to come in less than first and any sort of thing. And I just explained to them. I said, look, this was my criteria. This is how I evaluated you. And you know. Basically, like no personal offense. This is just, you know, based on these criteria and these numbers and blah, blah, blah. This is why I chose you. And I thought, okay, well, I, you know, I'm sorry the Red Hat folks are mad at me, but that's what I think. And I have to live with that because, you know, going forward, I have to do this stuff. And three months later, I got a call from the folks at Red Hat and they said, hey, we didn't love your write up, but we liked the way you went about doing this and we like your knowledge in the industry and we would like you to, to come work with us. So, the, you know, sort of moral of the story there is, um, you know, you can be passionate about what you work on. just be conscious about, uh, you know, making the things that you talk about other technologies, other companies, not personal, right? Your, your customers don't want you to get into a pissing match. It's not good on you because at some point you may change jobs or you may be on the other side of an argument. Um, so just sort of keep that in the back of your mind, you know, be, be professional, uh, keep the personalities out of it. Try not to be biased about stuff. And, uh, you know, people will recognize if, if you have skills that they want to they want to bring on board as opposed to just, are you religious one way or the other about technologies?
2: Yeah. And I would just add to, to even compliment that just one step further. And I would say, you know, one of the biggest things, um, both, you know, in, in my experiences and, and also, you know, with with others around me, what I like to see more than anything is a combination of exactly that, the trust or, trusted advisor kind of thing, but also just that ability to quite frankly, just make a decision and defend it. Yep. Even if it's maybe not necessarily the right one or not necessarily the popular one, the sometimes that ability to just kind of put that, you know, put that 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 stake in the ground and go this is what I believe and why will get you more respect than anything else. Yep. Yep.
1: Well, listen, uh, a couple lessons from us. Hopefully those were were useful to folks. We are going to have a chance to talk with longtime friend of the show, I think one of the first five or six shows, uh, Nick Weaver, who's probably been on more than anybody uh, on the show because Nick's had a really great career. He's worked a lot of different places on the engineering side. He's going to come talk to us about what it's like to have been on sort of the end customer side, moved over to the vendor side, built some successful projects, had some failed projects, and, and now has a really cool leadership role um, you know, in, his, in his current role. So we're going to talk a little bit about kind of engineering career paths and uh, you know some successes and failure with Nick Weaver. So look forward to that. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options integrated firewalls and load balancers, a new managed Kubernetes service, and much more. From predictable pricing to flexible configurations to world-class customer support, you'll get access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow your business. Plus, DigitalOcean's community provides over 2,000 tutorials to help you stay up to date on the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. So to get started on DigitalOcean for free, with a free $50 credit, go to Co/cloudcast. That's do.co slash cloudcast. And we're back. You know, and as we, Aaron and I talked about earlier in the show, uh, you know, we really wanted to kind of highlight some career paths from people. I know a lot of the people that listen to the show are at different stages of their career. They've, uh, you know, they may have begun in one type of job, they've evolved to another, maybe they're in a current situation, they want to evolve to something else, and they're kind of curious what the thought process was for people. Um, So, you know, we thought we would go back to one of our oldest friends of the show, uh, not not age-wise, but just, you know, sort of Somebody who's been around for the show for a long time. I think uh, he's been on five or six times. Has been with us as a, as a really good friend and, and kind of contributing to the show since really in the early days. So very excited to have the great Nick Weaver back with us. Nick, welcome back to the show.
0: Hey, thanks, Ryan. It's uh, it's good to be back.
1: Yeah, it's been a while. So. Um, you know, first off, we wanted to have you on because you have been through a lot of things. I mean, I, you know, Aaron and I talked a little bit about our career earlier uh, in the recording, but you've been through, you know, from an engineering perspective, a lot of interesting transitions, a lot of upward mobility, but you know, you've had some interesting opportunities, you had to make some some big decisions that impacted both Kind of your engineering career, but your family as well. So I thought we would talk about that a little bit. Um, so for folks that maybe don't know you, give a little bit of background. Maybe we'll just go back since the history of the show. Kind of uh, you know when you were doing things on the on the end user side and some of your career choices in terms of you know vendor side, some big projects, cloud stuff, and things like that.
0: Yeah, I guess I've had a bit of a, uh, I don't know if the career is random. Well, it, it may look random on the outside, but. Um... I did start, you know, really started my career working in the customer side. I was, you know, standard sysadmin, engineer. started doing DevOps stuff, getting to coding. I did coding in college and before that, and ended up kind of effectively getting on some disruptive technology that turned into what became kind of the precursor for private cloud that got me some uh, interest from some of the vendor space and being a disruptor and a customer that was leading got me flipped over to work for the great long gone but still here EMC (laughs) and uh, did some cool stuff there random things from labs to tech marketing to engineering to POCs at customers to sales engineering ended up in R&D doing some cool stuff got a couple patents there doing some cool things Um, that got me over into the VMware shops. I did get right. I did some vendor stuff for a while. They got me over to Intel, and now I am back um, working the customer side. It's just this time, um, much more of a senior leader. So trying to carve the way, and mostly what I'm working on now is digital transformation. Which, to be honest, if you'd asked me, you know, three years ago about digital transformation, I, I would have thought it was a, a BS um, marketing term. There's just a, a reason for vendors to sell more stuff. Now I realize it's a legitimately hard, difficult um, kind of transformational thing that can really make a big difference at companies trying to modernize themselves, and it's also really damn hard. Um, yeah. So it's kind of funny how I've come around that circle.
1: Yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes when you when you get inside and live some of these things, you uh, you sort of realize the the realities of it. Um, I, I want to go back. I'm I, I'm going to kind of make this show a little bit of of chronological and 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 have you walk through some of the, the transitions you made. Um, you know, when I first got to know you, you were just transitioning from, like you said, having been a sysadmin, uh, you got on one of the vendor's radars and you were working on some, some emerging technology. So at the time it was around virtualization, but it was also around kind of automation, infrastructure as code. Yeah. Um, and at the time you were you know for the most part like you were kind of a shy guy you were somewhat introverted um but you were willing to to take some chances with technology like you would tinker with some stuff and play with some stuff kind of and, and then it and then at some point you would you did a few things that like ended up in a giant keynote and all of a sudden you know you became very well known so kind of walk folks through you know both kind of your thought process when you used to just tinker with stuff and what made you curious and then kind of what happened the first time one of your projects kind of blew up and became really well, you know, really visible and well-known.
0: Yeah, I guess it's actually a fascinating thing that I've recently dwelled on. um, It's, I don't know if I ever really, and even to this day, I don't know if I am wired to ever do things purely for attention. I mean, it it turns out getting attention is kind of cool. Like, you know, getting patted on the back and people thinking you're awesome it's not a bad thing, and even if you're an introvert, it can feel pretty damn good. Uh, the exposure doesn't always feel good, but um, feeling like the things you do matter is always something a human being validates and feels, feels kind of warm and fuzzy about. I, For me, it was an accident, and I had been doing way before I did the EMC thing. I, You can go back to my early days in my career. I was always looking, I guess, out of the box. I, I, I don't really come into things with a lot of preconceived – opinions and i tend to disrupt in fact my my current boss loves to call me the disruptor of disruptors um which isn't always a compliment by the way right um because higher up you go the more that can be good the more that can be bad depending on how you use it but uh back then it was really just kind of trying to look at an out-of-the-box way being obsessed with the problem being lazy and then not wanting to do things in a manual way which pushed me <clears> towards automation but i think also for me the trick was always the ability to apply creativity To a problem, like don't don't lose focus on the problem you're trying to solve, but apply creativity to it. Like, really use your imagination, really think out of the box. And I, in a way, maybe it was just an accident that I was in the right place in the right time for that to get noticed. But I can remember, I can think back to like that big keynote I did for Gelsinger, which was a live demo on stage in front of I don't know, like six thousand people, showing off the Vplex stuff, moving you know hundreds of VMs across the country and back. And I built that thing – I only started working at EMC I think six weeks before and coded most of that. I mean the whole idea, concept, doing it all, and it was all so fast. And it was really – there was this guy named Steven Spellacy who was really the, the harvester, right? He saw what I was capable of. I pitched him the idea. Hey, why don't we just do this? So I was using my creativity. He was really the one who said, hey, this would be great and like, set it up. And he was really the one that facilitated the whole thing and she should get most of the credit. But I remember doing that and after it was over, like the reaction I got, everybody was like – excited I walked into a meeting with maybe a hundred of my peers and they all stood up and applauded me and I almost cried because I was I didn't expect it. To me it was just it was just doing my job. And um and it was special and, and I'll never forget that. But at the same time, I mean five minutes later I was more obsessed with the next problem. And I think that's that was one of the ways that I think I'd be able to keep myself grounded even with that kind of praise and publicity that I had earlier was it mattered more to me that I did something creative that solved the problem. And that felt good than it necessarily did to be popular. And I still coach people who, who have that kind of popularity attraction to get into that thing to say, never lose focus on what got you there. Um, because the popularity itself is not the, is not the reward. It's just like the symptom of the reward.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and just to kind of speed up the timeline a little bit, um, you know, so, so you, you got visible, um, you started working on some some bigger projects I know for a while there you ran uh, kind of the behind the scenes hands on labs at one of the really big conferences, both the VMware and the EMC conferences yeah. so you got you got fairly yeah. visible um, but then that thing almost you know I know having seen you having lived with it a couple of years later it went from being really interesting and cool and visible to becoming a burden so kind of walk through you know the the real burden of engineering of like hey we did the cool thing but then we had to own it we had to maintain it we had to people wanted it to scale and just you know like how is sort of that early experience transferred over to stuff you had to do later in life where you went from uh, you know kind of things that were headlines to things that are just you know hard engineering day-to-day tasks
0: yeah there's a there's an interesting um in hindsight there's an Interesting responsibility with being able to take a space that is looking for innovation, that may not understand the problem but can recognize creativity, or someone who can give the direction on how to, so- how to solve that problem, and then the, then the following responsibility to own that and not just take the credit for the idea, do enough to get everybody excited then walk away from it. And it, there's a, and the great, the great leaders can recognize both. In fact, I say one of Amazon's probably greatest um, structural things they do is they really are careful to hire leadership that has the execution delivery ability um, is much or more than the ability to come up with the concepts, the pitches, and stuff. You got to have both, and so for me, the, the journey from um, the early days of doing cool things, then going into EMC, doing bigger things, and then getting more and more responsibility and using more and more creativity, um, and it really transitioned when I went to, to, to the VMware stuff on vCloud Air. But there was the, also the factor that I think that really plays in there is scale. Because if you're doing something at a smaller scale, you can take more risk. It is more about the concept. When you go into larger scale, larger enterprise things, larger hands-on labs, building your own public cloud, those kind of things, um, the concept is important in the creativity and the uniqueness of how you approach it. But the execution is so much more because of the scale problems, because of the size of the investment and the dependency on that capability, all the kind of different wirings that occur there. And so the maturity of dealing with that scale and that responsibility came with it. And I, again, I yeah, made lots of mistakes on that journey. Um, but sometimes when you start small or you start in a different area, it takes a lot to grow into that where others maybe start from that spot. <clears throat> like I would say like Google engineers, a big part of their growth is learning that level of scale and that level of responsibility. Um, where maybe nowadays they're getting more boxed in in their creativity, but, um, that's definitely a journey I had to make.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So You know, at at one point, um, you know, you were you were doing well at uh, at EMC. Um, You were you were continuing to get greater visibility, and then you know, an opportunity came along for you to work on this new VMware project that they were going to build. They were going to essentially get in the public cloud business. Um, You know, it was uh, 2010 2011 timeframe, if I remember right. Uh, Maybe it was a little earlier than that, but it was you know, the public cloud was a thing at that point. Amazon was a thing. This wasn't sort of a new thing, but it was. You know, based on the idea that, well, you know, VMware has a huge enterprise footprint, so you know, we'll leverage that brand, we'll leverage that footprint. It'll help us, uh, you know, get into public cloud. Um, You took a really big architecture role in that, and you know, in hindsight, vCloud Air didn't necessarily pan out, didn't necessarily work out. um, Maybe because of brand, maybe because of marketing, could have been pricing, lots of different things. But you know. I think to a certain extent, like you may have looked at that as that was a project that it was a disappointment, right? wasn't a huge success. How did you kind of deal with that from a, you know, personality perspective, ego perspective, having, you know, in the past, a bunch of other sort of successful projects or things that were more well known?
0: Yeah, it was it was interesting. Actually, um, I, I learned a couple of lessons. I mean, first of all, and talking about the journey and lessons learned. And so if, I, if anybody could not make the mistakes I made, I learned a lot more. On the engineering front, about moving from being the man with the idea, right, to the one who helps create the ideas through others. And so that, when I started that project, it's because I was supposed to be the hottest thing on the block. I was the automation whiz. i just done Razor. I, I was like a minor league Kelsey Hightower, the talk circuit at the time. All kinds of cool things were happening. So there was this perception that I was a badass. And admittedly, I was was still a smart kid. And then he put me with this engineering team that I got to build inside of a a business model that wasn't well set up at the time or ever after that. Um, And all of a sudden, I had lots of growth areas. The first one is I I was building a team under timelines that were way too tight for a business model that wasn't necessarily going to be sustainable. And I had to build a large organization, engineering organization to execute because I wasn't going to do it by myself, which a lot of the things before heavily relied on my natural ability to close any kind of gaps that happened along the way. And so I learned a lot of things about myself, about how I lead, how I treat others. I learned a lot of things about patience, like let the good, let the good prevail in others. Like like it's the journey they're on, make them successful. And you got a better scaling organization versus just literally saving the day over and over and over again. I also learned the biggest lesson I learned was really like you really have to understand and influence that business story because no matter how successful you are as a technical person, if it doesn't connect to a business story, especially if you're in a high tech company or it doesn't connect to a market in a way that's very valuable to the customer, like you clearly can see that what you do is going to be valuable for them. You're on a ship that is going to change course or sink at some point in time. And I think with the vCloud Air, the engineering was actually incredibly, incredibly sophisticated. and We were starting from a place that probably wasn't the wisest place to start, technically. It was like use everything we got and all the other things we got. Don't do anything from scratch, but then also build it, make it all work together, right? So instead of Amazon, it started starting from the right place and building up. But in the end, what really made it hard was we were being really prescriptive on the business model for our customers. or were saying, hey, customers, this is the way you should pay for this. This is the way you should consume this. Rather than listening to our customers, like, here's how they wanted to consume it. And I ultimately think that was what made that not as successful as it could have been was we were kind of starting from what VMware wanted and trying to get to our customers rather than starting from our customers and working backwards. Um, but the engineering was awesome. The growth was awesome. I had some of the best team um, building at the early days that I've ever done there, and I'm still close to all those people. and I, I still think that today, from a small team, i probably been, built one of the best small teams. There's about sixteen ish, eighteen ish, of diverse engineers with a really strong skills. And I learned a lot of my recruiting tricks there. I learned a lot of my ability to pick out talent and how to mix talent and how to really observe personalities and some coaching things and a lot of self-reflection on how to go from an IC that could lead a team to a, Mm. a people person that can build teams. And that was really the catalyst for me was that project.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, but we, we talked about sort of the history of the show and, and the challenges of competing with the cloud. So that wasn't really the you know, the, the main focus. I think, I think like you said, I think the big takeaway that, that people should have sometimes in, in looking at a, a similar situation, you know, is you you do have to try and find situations and, and they can be hard to find sometimes, but you know, you, you need to align sort of the engineering tasks that are going on, uh, the way that the business model is aligned, you know, are those things well aligned, how are you engaging with the, the end user customers, and you know the, the companies that are really successful tend to get those right. Some of it may be luck, and, and others, you know, it's execution. And and there are lots of ways to maybe get those things uh, off. Maybe you know, not completely wrong, but off to a point where it may not be as successful as you wanted it to be. So, uh, you know, definitely some some lessons that people can take away from that as they look at look at their job or look at new opportunities. So you know, at some point, uh, you, you know, you were, you were living, uh, you were living in Texas at the time. Uh, you were originally from Texas. You're kind of a, a multi-generational Texan. You get an opportunity yep. to move out to the West coast. Uh, Intel reached out to you, wanted you to move to the West coast. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, I think go through that challenge of saying, Hey, you know, there's a, there's a big opportunity somewhere for me, but I, I, you know, I'd have to move. I'd have to uproot my family. I'd have to uproot my kids. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily know anybody out there kind of walk, people through what that process was like for you, because, uh, you know, you had a lot of things going on at the time and, and it was a big, it was a big risk at the time. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's worked out very well, but kind of walk you through the, how do you absorb that much change in your life?
0: Yeah, I, I I've actually got a, I've got a history of, of, um, leaving or cha- making changes when people, to other people it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. So I left, I actually left the EMC role at the, uh, at the high point, I, the Razor stuff was going crazy. Um, everything was going good. It's just um, it was a new challenge with the vCloud Air. And with the Intel thing, same thing. VCloud Air, I, the team was built. We were doing great things. You know, business model wasn't great. But, you know, hanging out with a team, building cool shit. The team's still together. They actually got, you know, moved over to OVH. They're still building. That team's still together. They're doing great stuff for OVH, which is becoming a really, really cool cloud. And that's one of their Dallas teams. So it's a badass team that's way grown past where I'm at. But I left them at that moment and a big part of that decision for taking a different job, moving to to Intel, moving to Oregon, all that kind of stuff, it was really based around a couple of things. One is um, from a family standpoint, we realized as a family we really wanted to kind of shake things up a little bit without getting too personal with it. We recognized that with our kids, the journey they're at, the ages they were, if we were going to relocate our family somewhere else in the world – we had a window to do that before they got too old and that relocation was going to get really, really difficult. We also didn't have a lot of family directly in the Dallas area, like immediate family. My other family is in Texas. Um, Her family was in Louisiana. And so us moving up there would be a more distance, but it wasn't like we were all living in the same town and ripping up roots that were really difficult to replace. Um, And so we had a little bit more ability there. The other thing was um, Dallas is a great city and um, there's lots of really great companies there, but for my career path, um, I was running a satellite engineering site um, for a specific engineering subsection of the Cloud Air Project in Dallas when 99.9% of VMware was back in Palo Alto. And so with Intel, even though their headquarters is in Santa Clara, there's like 14,000 people in Hillsborough working. It's a, a center of activity and engineering. And I realized at a certain point in my career growth, you're going to have to get closer to the mothership or you don't have the influence. And going back to the comment on the business part of it. Like you can be an IC or people manager who's obsessed with the technology. There's nothing wrong with that. You can be obsessed. There will be somebody above you who will connect what you're obsessed about with what the business needs. Right. And that has to exist. And that person will be both obsessed with what you can do technically and what you care about and obsessed with what the business needs to be successful and how technology can disrupt and ship and make them differential, you know, differentiated in their own market. And that's the role I was moving towards, was more being that line between not just understanding how – like I knew what technology was capable of. I could build teams. I could be intimate with them. I could understand them. I could help select the, the leaders to run them, and I could protect them. But I was moving more and more to how to use technology for business problems. And so to do that, you have to be close to the business part of it. You have to be within that region. You can't just be in an a outlay site. And so for Intel, that was the motivation. is hey, I can get close to one of their main sites – We can move to Oregon, which is a very different climate, um, uh, way more access to beaches and skiing and outdoors. We felt it might be a better environment for our family. Also, disruption to our family kind of reset things. And so those things all kind of rolled up into a bit of a risk and experiment, but they felt like the right thing to do. The move itself was a little rough. Um, You know, I got busy right away. I got distracted. And if anything, anybody's thinking about relocation. Um, the best advice I can say is you know, plan for spending time with your family because when you move them, you're basically cutting off all their sources of access for comfort and socialization. And so you have to provide a lot of that and actually keep them involved and get start getting, get them ingrained because a lot of people have moved who has gone poorly for them. And that was always one of the big issues is the connecting and putting down roots. Um, but we worked that out. And now, honestly, we're, I guess, five years later, and I don't know how in the world we could ever leave this area in some ways. Because our roots are deep, we've loved it up here. We feel like it was one of the best decisions we've ever made in our family's life was moving up here. And I it's not just about Oregon, though. Oregon is amazing. I'll say that. Um, it's really about we landed in a good place. We put our roots down. It's paid off from a family standpoint, the way we've ingrained into it. Like the journey has been really good. Um, and so, yeah, it's, all those decisions kind of came together. They worked out. But we don't feel bad about it. We feel like we made the right call, the right decision. Now, I have had some friends – who have made that decision and them not work out. And especially to Oregon, I have two people I can think of right now who moved to Oregon and moved back. It didn't work out for them. And so it doesn't work out for everybody.
1: Right. Yeah, no, and I, I think your point about, uh, you know, the, the rest of your family, I mean, the, the thing is, if you, if you move to take a job, especially if it's a, you know, a bigger job than you had before, I mean, you're, you're immediately going to have kind of a, a group of people that you're going to spend a lot of time with. You're going to spend time with your coworkers. You're going to need to be there probably late hours. You're going to do some dinners. And, and sometimes people can forget that that the rest of the family, you know, is now away from their friends. They're somewhere else. They're having to be at a school that's new. They're having to find new restaurants. They're having to learn the cities. And yeah, I think that point about, you know, making sure that you you acclimate everybody uh, and, and kind of recognize that is is really, really important. Because um, like you said, it, it's it's very easy if you change jobs, even if you just change jobs in general, to sort of forget that, you know, you get this immediate group of people that help spend your time and, and show you things and teach you things that, that not everybody necessarily is going to get as part of your, as part of your move or change.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I'd like to call out for those that may be thinking about it, um, the one pattern I did notice for the, for what happened to me and what happened to others that made it kind of make or break. And this, I'm not, I don't like to be super prescriptive that this solves all problems, but I'll give an example. So my wife, uh, my spouse had gone back to school and it was a couple years into her, her degree when we decided to move and a part of her coming up here is we actually found her a school and we got her enrolled and got her, she got, I got everything dialed in where she could continue her education up here. So she literally moved up here in the summer and started classes again, um, at university of Portland, the private school up here right in September. So she, she, her story, her journey was able to continue. Now the kids, we had to like keep them involved. We got them in a really good school. They made friends fast. My kids are super extroverts. So, and they're young, so they can adapt better. but, both of, I think a lot of my friends who wasn't successful, most of it came down to their spouses didn't get to continue their journey. And maybe I was lucky because my wife was on this. Um, we really prioritized her education and what she wanted to do a couple of years before we moved. So even I moved, it was my career and stuff. There has been a focus effort to focus on what she wants first. It was a decision we made together because I kind of I had my shot first. Now it was her turn, and she got to continue her journey. She finished her bachelor's. Now she's finishing her master's degree. And so I think a lot of that made things easier because um, she still got what she wanted, right? And in fact, she really she, – I think she likes the school she graduated from, and she loves her master's degree program. She's a writer in the West Coast, especially Northwest, is an amazing place for writers. She has tons of friends up here. She, has, she goes to conferences. It's like She ended up in an ecosystem that better supported what she cared about. So I feel like that's a little bit of luck, but I will say for those are looking to move, you can't look at that move as something where it's all about you. Your spouse or partner, whoever that is, they've got their own journey and you've got to prioritize them, whether that's your responsibility to be that for them or whether you find a way that you can't make that switch without taking care of them the same way you take care of yourself.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's. Uh, it's good advice for any relationship in general. So, uh, really, really good. Um, you you know, I, I've got two questions left. One of them, I actually, I think I'm going to hold back. We may actually make an entire uh, segment out or an entire show out of it at some point. But, uh, so you mentioned that, that your current job, you're, you're back on the, what, what, what vendors would call end customer side. I mean, you're, you're working (laughs) for a large corporation. Um, you're helping to run their IT and, and you mentioned you're part of them trying to go through digital transformation, right? The thing that sometimes sounds marketing, but, but you're living it. Um, let, let's talk a little bit, let's, let's not so much talk about the tech, but let's talk about the people side of things. Um, you know, one of the big things that always comes up when people talk about the challenge of digital transformation, you know, DevOps gets thrown in there, agile gets thrown in there, but it's, it's kind of always about, do we have the right skills of people today? You know, do we need to retrain people? Can we upskill them? Do we hire new, you know, to kind of, you know, jumpstart it or be the new team. And then there's some organizational stuff. Can, can you give us a little bit of, you know, what are, what are some of you know? Are those some of the challenges you've gone through? And then having been now in this role for a couple of years, like what are some of the things you've done to, to try and make that evolve?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, man, I could probably talk. I, I literally could talk for hours about all the lessons I've learned. My lessons, I don't mean in a negative way. I mean in a positive way. Yeah. I I feel these last two years really. And a lot of people that work with me probably don't even realize this because I don't share it openly, but probably some of the most disruptive to my thinking. I mean, it doesn't change who I am. I'm still hyper-technical, sometimes, sometimes too technical. And coming to the company I am now, I, mean, I'm, I would say too technical is probably more of the problem um, when I have problems with it. But the biggest thing I realized when you get a digital transformation, in, in they're overused words here like strategy. But a, an organization's first problem with digital transformation is getting dialed in on what's important and what they're trying to do um you can sit and you could say you got the wrong talent you got the wrong agile process you got the wrong this you got the wrong that um and in fact i could say several things that would make me look really good things i know like hey you should do service, you should be doing domain driven development like as i know it you should be doing distributed systems because i feel like i know those you should be doing cloud because i feel like i'm comfortable i can be selling all these things in digital transformation that make me feel more important but in reality they're important only if you know where you're going and so if you take a large retail company and you said hey what does omni-channel mean to us? If you take a large, um, a large company that has tons of supply chain and say, what is like, a future supply chain look like and what does that differentiate for us? If you take data analytics and say, you know, how are we using analytics today? And what does the future look like and what does that unlock for us? When you really nail down what the transformational things that you do using technology – could and how they affect that business and what the before and after can look like when you really nail that down and then you nail down what's most important when you really focus on exactly what are the transformational things that could change the way the company works believe it or not if you get clarity on that and get an organization dialed into that all of a sudden those other things the agile and the talent actually are a lot easier to solve because people know where they're going and I've seen in other companies, and I've seen a little bit here. Even though we we fixed so many things in the last couple of years, we're getting so, we're, we're actually honestly we're getting so much better at this, and it's amazing. Um, but I've seen lots of times where we, we think there's a tactical solution, like if I just do agile, I'll nail this digital transformation, or if I just get some more developers in, I'm gonna nail digital transformation, and it's not true. You're just gonna do the same thing again with a different set of people. When you truly know where you're going, and when you truly understand how complex it is, and you get everybody focused on that problem then you can start to apply people, then you start to find gaps, then you figure out what the processes that can support those things are. But it all starts from where you're going. And there's also the realization that you can do a billion things or thousands of things at once and make zero progress. When you really focus on what the big things that technology can do to disrupt and change your corporation are, and you really focus on those, number one, you'll make progress. And some of those can have huge impact. Number two, you'll get good at transformation. You know, you get good on a couple of them, you'll get good at several of them. And pretty soon, the other ones will fall in. And so they take too many on at once that they get stalled. And also, there's a, when you have huge companies that have been around a long time, you have lots and lots of people who are really, really smart, people managers and technical people who just want to know what's next. They want to know what the next mission is. And when you're, I mean, you've got a, isolated groups inside a corporation that own that mission and the rest don't own it, they're going to be resistance to it, right? They're going to push back against it. They're going to, they're gonna talk back channel. They're gonna resist it. They're gonna do all kinds of things which will slow the process down. When you bring that story out and you really let the whole technology organization, the whole business organization understand it's a shared goal, <laughs> they're all of this together. All of a sudden, people realize they have a place. There's a future for them. Because I have, as many times as I walk in a brand new developer who's young, who adds to things, and who's disruptive to thinking, I also have a 20 year vet who brings an operational experience, who looks at what they're doing and goes, Oh, I didn't realize it was that simple. And you put those two together and give them the same mission, and it's amazing how powerful that actually is. Because that twenty-year veteran cares about that company more than that new person ever will, or maybe not ever will, but for a long time. And they will do the right thing because they they've earned that place and they know all the ins and outs of the politics. They know all the ins and outs of the organization. What they don't know is that transformational unlock to how to think differently. So if you can mix those two things, that's where I found it most powerful.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's I, I think that's great insight. I, I you know I always. You know me; I always try and narrow things down to sort of sound sound clips and sound bites and stuff. And I always get to the point where I'll say, sometimes, you know, a lot of times, digital transformation is just, you know, from a business perspective, if you can think about putting the internet between you and your customer, and then narrow down everything that goes on in between, which is, I think, is a lot of what you're talking about. Which is, if you're going to reimagine what you do, you basically have to get to, well, what would we like the world to look like? What's what, what could be possible? And then you kind of work backwards from what's what's that possible, um, right. you know. And, and again, there's lots of different ways to explain it, but I think I think you hit on the thing that I found ultimately makes customers the most successful. Is if you if you're starting some sort of big transformation with, well, we're going to have this new technology or we're going to use this new technology, it's going to transform us. You will ultimately, you know, be out looking for a problem. You will be a hammer looking for a nail. If you start yep, with a, if you right. start with a business problem things sort of fall into place because obviously the leaders in the company have a vested interest in that they want the business to grow. But the people that work there would love to see the business grow as well. It gives them direction. It gives you, you know, a reason to want to be creative from the bottom up. It gives the top down a reason to to set goals that are big and, and support you financially and and so forth. So, you know, I think that's, I think that's awesome. And like you said, we we probably uh, could go into, you know, a whole long discussion about that. Um, obviously, sometimes it's tough to get into into some of the things without all the details, but uh, very, very good stuff. Nick, let me ask you one last thing before we go. Uh, this is sort of a, a little funny story that I know you and I have talked about before. Um, when you moved out to the West Coast and you started – getting to, to hang out with a bunch of the sort of, you know, big brains and really smart people look at Google and other places. Um, there were a few other Nick Weavers in that universe. Give folks just a little sample of, uh, what happened with you and the other Nick Weavers of the world.
0: Yeah. So, yeah that's hilarious. Um, so yeah, I would, I, I, uh, I want to be careful not to throw this Google leader under the bus. Number one, cause he's super smart and I probably shouldn't name drop but I was, I was in a meeting with a very, very smart Google leader who had invented some theorems in the world that are super influential. And he's also brilliant. Like I, I should, probably shouldn't have been in the room with him. Um, I was with others. It wasn't just me. And he happens to shoot me an email afterwards or something. Or no, we went on a phone call. I apologize. It wasn't a face-to-face. It was on a phone call. So he, he heard my voice, but um, he didn't uh, see my face. And so I mean, an email right after. said, hey, man, I'd love to talk. Let's get on a call and catch up. And I'm like going… Wow, this guy just pinged me. Why in the world would he want to talk to me? So I get on the phone call with him, and we talk, we talk, we talk, have a great conversation on a whole bunch of really deep things around like scheduling and back pressure and all kinds of interesting stuff. And you know, maybe he was super open on some stuff he probably sure shouldn't have been. Um, we were under NDA, so it was all legal, but um, didn't really know me that well after all because he thought I was a different Nick Weaver. Because at the end, he goes, hey, man, I just want to let you know if you have the I'm a big fan of your work. And you know, a 45-minute call, no hiccups. No indicators that I wasn't who he thought he was, or who, I, who he thought I was. And at the end, I went, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What do you mean, my work?" Because in my head, it was impossible that this gentleman could have ever heard of anything I did from his level, from what he was doing with doing in the world. And he goes, "Aren't you Nick Weaver from Berkeley?" And I went, "I am not. I know Nick Weaver from Berkeley." And that was one of the moments among several where. It, me, uh, a gentleman by Nick Weaver, who's a huge, famous security guy, um, quoted on you know multiple websites. Um, brilliant dude. And um, another gentleman who was the CEO of Eero, Nick Weaver, who I'm actually – I'm an avid Eero fan, by the way. I'm going to be able to say that. I am a user of Eero. They just got bought by Amazon I think like six or nine months ago. But I love Eero, so I'm actually a customer as well. We have frequently <clears throat> actually had people ping us about the other Nick Weaver. So he – each one of us has had this happen to us. Um, I was the cloud Nick Weaver. there's a the security Nick Weaver, and there was the Wi-Fi Nick Weaver. So eventually, we actually connected. I met. Um, I didn't meet. I haven't met the Eero Weaver in person yet, but I did meet um, security Nick Weaver. We got beers at Thirsty Lion one time, and um, we all just got, made an agreement that we would just, you know, reroute. You know, I don't know if it's like OSPF or or uh, some kind of routing protocol. If one of us gets hit first, we'll redirect to the correct Nick Weaver. Um, but yeah, there's this whole <laughs> little triumvirate of the three Nick Weavers. I will say the other two Nick Weavers are doing a lot better than I am in some ways. <laughs> um, so I may be the third on the rung there, the Nick Weavers, but I still feel honored to be in the group.
1: There you go. Very good. Well, we were, we are very honored to continue to have, uh, this Nick Weaver on with us. Uh, dude, it is, it is great to catch up with you. Uh, we need to do this more often. Um, yeah. you know, um, you know, folks, uh, you know, hopefully going through all those experiences from, you know taking on new projects, to taking on the unknown, to, you know, making sure your job's going to be aligned to the business and um, all those things. Hopefully Nick's stories are things that you can relate to. Hopefully they're things that, uh, uh, you know, you may be struggling with in in your career choices or, you know, you're trying to figure out how to how to grow your, your career and so forth. So hopefully those were useful, um, you know, and hopefully this little segment we've been doing about, uh, you know, kind of career paths and engineering career paths have been helpful. So with that, uh, Nick, thank you again so much for the time. Folks, as always, thank you for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for rating the show on on whatever your podcast catcher is. And with that, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.